Uh, let's ask God to help us now uh, with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your great mercy that we will be those who have humble and contrite hearts which tremble at your word and that through the work of your word our thinking would not be conformed to our age but transformed so that we can know and approve and do your good, perfect and acceptable will in all things. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it as it is, the word of the living God, our creator and judge and saviour. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Good. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Uh, as I was uh, scrolling through the newspaper on the last weekend of my long service leave, last weekend, it was brought home to me powerfully that we are living in a society where more and more, as in Isaiah's day, evil is being called good, Darkness is being substituted for light. And what is bitter, what should cause us grief and sorrow is called sweet, desirable. A society that, again, like Isaiah's society, is under God's pronouncement of woe, his declaration of judgment. And so before I start the advertised series on the creed, I wanted to talk to you about the growing deliberate confusion of good and evil, right and wrong, light and dark in our society, so that we believers in the Lord Jesus won't share in it, and so we will keep calling good what God calls good, and evil what God calls evil, and so be a different people the holy people he calls us to be, different in our thinking, different in our choices, and so different in our lives because we trust him, our creator and saving God, a people who can, by being different, be salt and light and offer life and hope to a society under God's pronouncement of woe. Now, what provoked me was two articles, one in The Australian, the other in The Age. I'm broadening my media consumption. The first was titled, Our Brother Shot Our Father Dead. It was an heroic act. It tells the story of Glenn Stratton and the circumstances surrounding and the aftermath of his shooting of his father at his father's insistent request. It is a truly tragic story. Being told, though, to suggest that the restrictions surrounding accessing help to die under the Victorian assisted dying legislation are too restrictive and not fit for purpose. For the father in the story was not assessed as being likely to die in the following six months. Although, as it became clear, he was determined to die on a day he had already chosen, just as he was determined not to access palliative care. 
But what struck me was the way this killing was spoken of. This is his sister and his brother, his sister. I am so proud of Glenn, the courage he displayed in helping Dad with his last wish. Whilst legally wrong, it is the most selfless act that anyone could have done and this has changed him forever. Or his brother, so my new hero is now my brother for sacrificing his own freedom in the greatest act of love one can commit. We are now in a society where, in a national newspaper, the demand to have one's life end at the time of one's choosing is accepted as legitimate. And it can be said that the violent taking of a life, the being, and it's clear in the story that this is the case, the being emotionally coerced into doing what should never be done is heroic, a selfless act, the greatest act of love one can commit. Let that sink in. Killing another, acquiescing in their wrong demands is the greatest act of love one can commit, so it's said. Now that is evil for good, darkness for light. The second article was one published in The Age looking at Australian responses to the American Supreme Court decision to overturn the precedent set by Roe versus Wade, titled My Body, My Choice. In this article, destruction of a human life by another human was also presented as a good, as almost a form of salvation from overwhelming and distressing circumstances. Now, you might hesitate to talk about abortion as the taking of a human life because it's not fashionable, but it is. From fertilisation, the developing embryo is a distinct human life. It's human. It's not another kind of life. It has the same chromosomal inheritance as any human in bodily continuity with the life that will emerge from the womb and grow into an adult if undisturbed. Each of us began our lives, our human lives, as an embryo. And it is distinct human life. It's not part of the mother, but a genetically unique human life affecting its own environment from the beginning. And, of course, it is alive, and that's the problem for many the fact that it will grow and make more demands on them. Yes, of course, it's dependent and developing, but so are babies. And unconscious or severely ill people are dependent on others. Being a human life dependent on other humans does not diminish your status as human. Now, the more hard-headed of those in favour of abortion, like Peter Singer, recognise that the embryo and the fetus is a distinct human life. They just reject the idea that merely being human confers any absolute ethical protection for that life. They make its value depend on the value the mother gives to it. So what's being said? So what is being said and printed without challenge? or qualification in a significant newspaper about the destruction of human life. Well, here those who have had abortions. Alex Gordon, abortion saved my life. 
I was in an abusive relationship and if I was trapped with that man, I don't know if I'd still been here. Taking human life, the killing of another, is talked about in a respected newspaper as a legitimate form of salvation from what are undoubtedly distressing, overwhelming circumstances, but circumstances for which the embryo bears no responsibility. Katie said of her abortion at 18, the contraception I was taking failed. It happens and I wasn't ready to be a mum. It wasn't an easy decision and it's not one that I made lightly, but I don't regret that. It allowed me to finish my school. I got to go to university because I had an abortion. Taking human life is talked about as legitimate if it allows you to fulfil your personal ambitions. But more, that destruction of life is being normalised, presented as a legitimate and appropriate response to a pregnancy that's unwanted. The article continues to quote Natasha Sangia, who it says had an abortion because she did not want a baby at that stage of life. It shouldn't just be in extreme situations. It should be an everyday decision that we should be able to make. Now, that is the society we live in. Where God has protected human life from the beginning as sacred, made in his image, declaring to Noah, whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image, where God has protected human life by making them in his image and where he has forbidden non-judicial killing in society, declaring to his people, do not murder, we now talk about the taking of human life, whether our own when we choose, at our own hand or by the actions of others, or the taking of yet unborn human life as a good, as life-enabling a means to give us the life, the kind of life we desire, think best for us. This is calling evil good, darkness light. Now we need as believers to be clear about that and we need to be different. So for clarity, to help us see that it's wrong, let's consider some common features of this embrace of death of choosing killing as desirable and good. Firstly, the choices of abortion and assisted dying actually share a common character with all sin. You see, the choice is seen as between a diminished and difficult life without killing and a better life or existence with killing. There's the choice with euthanasia or assisted dying between pain and limitation or a life or existence or a claimed non-existence that's still the person's imagined future existence that is pain-free. Or with abortion, there's a choice between being encumbered with a dependent child and all that might mean for the woman whether that's being stuck in an abusive relationship or being tossed out of home by parents or an inability to pursue education or stress and tiredness that seems so hard between that difficult life or the ability to pursue life where you can be freed from those difficulties, a choice that's often being made in a context of fear and anxiety. 
in both choices. What is desired, the better life, can be had if they can kill or have someone else killed take life against God's command. Where the good life is theirs, if they will take sovereignty over life and death, theirs or another's, into their own hands. And so in that sense, the choice of abortion and euthanasia shares the character of all sinful choices from the beginning, but felt with greater intensity in these extreme situations. Because, you see, this was the same choice faced by Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, wasn't it? They could have the desirable life, the devil told them, the life where they would be like God, no good and evil. They could have there, as Eve considered, the fruit that was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable for obtaining wisdom. They could have their physical, aesthetic and intellectual appetites fulfilled if they were wise in their own eyes, if they disobeyed God and ate. And the alternative, well, continue in what is now seen as a lesser existence, a diminished existence, if they just did what God commanded and did not eat of the tree. See, Adam and Eve could have that good life if they would trust themselves and their own wisdom and ignore and disobey God's word, if they would reckon evil, believing the devil's lie and disobeying the generous, loving creator God, if they would reckon evil good and good being faithful to evil and obeying his command, being faithful to God and obeying his command, evil. And what was the outcome of their choice? Death. But actually this is the same choice we are all tempted to make whenever what we desire conflicts with what God says. Where say God says we should be faithful to our marriage and we want out. Where God says we should obey our parents but we think we know better. Where, as it says in Titus, God tells us we should submit to rulers and authorities and obey, but we resent their instruction and authority over us. When faced with those choices, and many of us have faced them, what will we do? Will we say life is found in trusting our own wisdom or trusting God's word? But actually... This is the choice our Lord warns us against from the very beginning when he calls us to follow him. The choice of, well, wanting to save our lives by not following him, not hearing his call. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, he said. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. There's the choice to save our own lives by trusting in ourselves and pursuing what seems best to us and not trusting the God of life by dying by, why, by denying ourselves to follow Jesus. You see, whatever the surrounding circumstances, whatever our fears and anxieties, the choice of abortion and voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia have in the end this common character. It's a choice between trusting and obeying the good God who says we must not kill or trusting in ourselves and being wise in our own eyes. The choice to kill has the character of all sin and you can sin 
even when you think you are doing good if you disobey God's word. And secondly, the idea that... Sorry. Good. Secondly, the idea that killing can be good, like the first sin, needs lies to sustain it. Consider some of the lies surrounding voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia. Here's one. You have all sovereignty over your own life. That's not true. You didn't give yourself life. God did. He's the potter. You're the clay. Your life is given and sustained by him. You are his creature, entrusted with a life for which you're accountable to him. He's sovereign, not you. Another lie, you have a right to have others help you take your life. Not true. No one has a right to demand that others disobey their creator God to fulfil their own wishes. Or again, you will be better off if you take your life. Not true. The scripture says it's given to people once to die and after death face judgment and you are never better off if you die in rebellion to the living God. Oh, that killing is an appropriate treatment of suffering. Not true. Treating suffering is the appropriate treatment for suffering, whether that is pain relief or overcoming isolation and fear. The destruction of the sufferer is not treatment. Another lie, love is facilitating someone's wrong desire. No, it is never love to help someone disobey God. What lies sustain abortion? Well, let's just consider the lie in the slogan that's presented as if it's an argument. My body, my choice. <laughs> the lie here is that it's only the woman's body involved. And so the choice then is entirely hers and should be left to her alone. But that's not true. There is another human life involved, which as a distinct human life, an embodied life, should be considered and its bodily life protected. All of us, as I've said, start life as an embryo. There was never a time when we were not human and became human. Our lives have been in seamless continuity from conception. If your mother had aborted you, she would have been destroying you. The body of that distinct human life is also involved and so thought should be given to the circumstances under which it might, if ever, be justly destroyed and the protections that life is entitled to as human life made in the image of God. But all of that's just obscured by the slogan. And on this lie, the nature of the choice the woman makes is then distorted. It's framed as a choice that only has to do with her, that only her wants, needs and body are concerned, and that she can make the decision in isolation from the needs of others. But that is an unreality. My body, my choice on this understanding is then the claim that another human life cannot create an obligation to care for it just by its existence, even if it is closely, intimately related. 
that a helpless, dependent human life has no necessary intrinsic claim on our love or compassion. And where that life's needs conflict with our own plans or needs, we can harden our hearts to it, that we actually have a right to pass by on the other side without even a twinge of guilt. And so on this understanding of life, no relationships with the responsibilities they bring are obligatory. But God has obligated to others, us to others who are made in his image. You will love your neighbour as yourself, he has commanded. And so relationships with others do create obligations, bodily obligations, and that's true even now. Two simple examples. You don't have a choice about whether you'll wear a seatbelt or not and you don't have the choice to sell your kidney. And those are simple examples. And those restrictions on your bodily rights are therefore the common good, the good of others, to prevent the burden on the healthcare system of head injuries sustained in car accidents or the corruption of the supply of transplants. We are obligated in love to those made in God's image. Thirdly, these are choices that harm others. Now, sometimes there are obvious victims, like the as yet unborn human whose life is terminated, or in the case of voluntary assisted dying, where there is a right to die, that quickly has become a right to expect others to help me die. And so I can demand my rights be met, feel there is a right to ask of another what no one should ever ask of any, that they kill them. A right to insist that if they loved, they would kill. And to insist on that, to demand that, is to do the other person harm. The story of Glenn illustrates that, actually. He's written from prison, for what's in my mind just won't go away and will always be with me. At the start of each day, he has an image of death, violent death, for he shot his father through the head, seared into his mind, an image from which he cannot escape. His sister Donna wrote, Glenn is often withdrawn and struggles mentally every day. He struggles to keep what happened out of his mind and this will torment him for the rest of his life. There is exposure of others to moral and emotional coercion, whether of those in the family or those in professions that deal with the sick and dying, and that is to do them harm. But the harm to others goes further. The assertion of a radical human sovereignty is in the end isolating and corrosive of the bonds of mutual obligation that holds a society together. It's a recipe for radical loneliness and insecurity, a loneliness and insecurity that is growing in our society. You see, that radical human sovereignty reinforces the view that you will only be loved, only have your interests considered while you have value to the other person and you can't be loved for yourself, have value in yourself. Whereas God, our sovereign, has said that every one of us is made in his image, valuable 
in ourselves because valuable to him. Oh, and fourthly, this choice of either abortion or voluntary assisted dying actually does harm those who make that choice. It exposes them to the judgment of the just God whose will they've ignored and disobeyed. It leaves them with a life of diminished value. They live knowing their life is not sacred but only has the values others put on it and they live with grief and guilt for it's hard to deny that you have destroyed a life even if you felt you had no other choice. And where killing is normalised as right and good because it's your choice, the only path you see that, uh, that was open to you, well, you've actually blocked where that killing is normalised as good. You've blocked the only path that can address those harms to you and to society, the path of repentance and forgiveness. And you've blocked it because... You can't identify what has been done as wrong. Give it the seriousness you may feel. You can't name it as the enormity of taking an innocent life. And you can't, where you've normalised this as good and right, acknowledge the sovereignty of the God who has given life and whom you have wronged in taking it. The God alone who can forgive you and give you peace. And that, let me say, is perhaps the greatest harm of calling evil good and good evil. To think and speak of killing as good and life-saving is wrong. Now, I know I haven't dealt with all the hard cases around abortion and assisted dying or the circumstances that make these attractive choices to some. My goal isn't to give a full treatment of ethics, of the ethics of abortion and assisted dying. I'm happy to talk to you about that. But my goal is to draw your attention to the normalisation of killing, of destroying human life in the way our society speaks of those actions because we can all start to think like our society. The constant repetition of lies is actually at the heart of all propaganda because it's effective. If not in changing minds, at least in numbing us to the wrong undermining our moral intuition and so making the unacceptable easier to accept. We have to resist that by continuing to speak the truth. Our understanding of what's right and wrong, good and evil, and our moral intuition, what we feel to be right and wrong, must be shaped by the word of God. We are, as the Apostle Paul tells us, to live transformed lives starting with the renewal of our minds, changing our thinking as we come to know and love God's will. So we need to be clear about what God says is good and right and what he says is wrong. And let me give you three reasons, again, why we shouldn't succumb to the confusion of right and wrong. Firstly, as I've already said, being clear about sin, about what God says is wrong, keeps the path of repentance, that is the path to peace with God and eternal life, open for others. For you can only repent of what you are convinced is wrong. Secondly, clarity now will help you when the time comes when you may well be facing choices like these. 
when, say, you know the anxiety and fear of facing an incurable and painful illness or facing a pregnancy that threatens to disrupt, as you see it, and impoverish your life. When, for example, you've finished your family and find you're pregnant and you cannot bear to think of the tiredness, the disruption of being drawn back into a stage of life you thought you've moved on from. Or when, for example, you fall pregnant out of wedlock, or maybe in years to come your daughter falls pregnant out of wedlock. It shouldn't happen, but it can. Or perhaps you're faced with the results of the ultrasound that show that your baby is a genetic abnormality that may or may not be consistent with life. Or at the other end of life, all the treatment options have been exhausted and you are now facing loss of dignity and constant pain. Those things might happen to us. And it's better to have thought through the issues now, to be clear on God's will, so that then, in the midst of the darkness of fear and anxiety, you can walk in the light of his word and entrust your life into his hands and honour him by resolving to persevere in doing what pleases him, doing what he says is right, knowing that he loves you and has promised to keep you. And that's the third reason for thinking clearly, so that we can live confidently the different lives God calls us to in all our circumstances. Believers in the Lord Jesus have been called and given different lives. Called to and given different lives. A transformed life because in the gospel we have had our eyes open to know and trust the living God. That's right, isn't it? To be a believer is to know God is good and God is almighty and to know his love and wisdom and power and to know that that is for us. And we know this because when the Lord Jesus had a choice between what he desired and what he feared, between life, which is such a natural good, and death, the shameful death of the cross, he was the very opposite of Adam. He didn't look to his own desires, his longing for life. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And that hard decision was fruitful, not of death and a diminished life, but of life itself, his own exaltation over all, and abundant life, eternal life for all who trust him. In being saved through the cross, we know what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, that the God who calls us to trust him and show that in obeying him, is infinitely wiser, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more loving than we or anyone can imagine. Now, hopefully, none of us who confesses that Jesus is Lord and that he's died for our sins thinks we know better than God what is good and right and good for us. Or at least, hopefully, when we find ourselves thinking of that, we repent with shame and sorrow immediately. Like the Lord in the garden, we might and often do struggle 
in the weakness of our flesh to align our wills with his will when facing a hard choice. But we can never doubt the goodness or the good purpose of God for us, the God who gave his son to give us life. We're different because we trust God. And we are different because we know, as Paul says, that we're not our own, that we've been bought with a price. So we are to glorify God with our bodies. Now that's blasphemy to a culture that worships human autonomy, that says authenticity is the greatest virtue and you must be true to yourself, to being who you choose to be, accountable only to yourself. But actually, this is our blessed reality. We belong to Jesus and that is good. Now, hopefully, as many of you know, this is the... uh, answer to the first question of the New City Catechism that you are hopefully teaching your children. But hear the longer answer to that question from the Heidelberg Catechism from which that first question is adapted. What is your only comfort in life and death? In a sense, the Heidelberg Catechism having this as question number one says, this is the beginning of the Christian life. What is your only comfort in life and death? that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to tell you why that is so good. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is, brothers and sisters, our comfort and hope that as Christians, believers in Jesus, We live and die as those who belong to Jesus. And that is the reality that informs all our decisions. Work, marriage, how we use our money and what we do when another human life seems to impose on us or we feel our own life burdensome. We belong to Jesus. We do what pleases our Lord with our bodies. And his will is clear. Life is his to be reckoned as sacred and may only, if ever, be taken as he commands. Now that commitment, the different lives we are given and called to, while being clear about right and wrong, will also find expression in living lives of love, including loving others in the context of these choices. Now, it goes without saying, doesn't it, that love will not live a selfish life. So if you're a bloke, for example, you won't use women for pleasure and then abandon them. And love will not live a hypocritical life. You know, where on the one hand you say the way of life is trusting God and doing his will no matter what the cost is, but then you're not doing it yourself. Where you, when it comes to something that affects you, are still being wise in your own eyes disobeying, say, the government where it suits you, or your parents, or harbouring sexual sin. 
Such hypocrisy is a failure of love, making the life-giving truth unattractive. Love wants to show to others how good it is to trust the living God. So what will love do, especially in relation to the distressing issues that make voluntary assisted dying and abortion attractive to others, but which, of course, voluntary assisted dying and abortion do nothing about? Well, love, according to our opportunities and stations in life, will engage with those very human needs. You know, love won't let anyone die lonely and isolated and that should be a resolve in your heart with those you know. Love won't let anyone die lonely and isolated and love will address the challenges faced by mothers, whether they're financial or personal, minding children providing safe accommodation, even opening your home, encouraging them to trust. Now, there are big needs, big felt needs, and so there are also big opportunities to do good, and love should be ambitious to do good, for we have been saved to do good. In Titus 2.14 it says, The Lord Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession eager to do good works. And Paul comes back to that in Titus 3. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. I hope you are ambitious for more than a happy family, good holidays and a healthy and secure retirement. I hope you are ambitious to do good and I hope you recognise that doing good is not just an impulse of the moment. It's a commitment of a lifetime and often a commitment to discipline and hard work. Take being involved in palliative care at any level. That takes years. Love is determined and can commit to the long haul. I hope you want to use your gifts and skills to do good. In this context, perhaps raising money, creating organisations, developing policies that will support women through their pregnancy and support their as yet unborn babies. I think we have to actually recover that. We have to be ambitious to do good. Love wants to do good. And love speaks. Love speaks of sin, clearly, to give opportunity of conviction and repentance. Love speaks of judgment. God says, woe, and his word is not an expressing an opinion but a certain outcome, and surely we want others to find the mercy we have found. And so love also speaks of forgiveness, for our Lord says there is forgiveness for all our sins, even for killing. People will be forgiven for all sins, he says. He has that authority. And love speaks in love. 
And we have to remember that, don't we? If we've got convictions about these things, as we're ignored, dismissed, misrepresented, grieved, there is a temptation to speak in frustration and anger. But but these are issues that demand tears, not tirades, especially online. Gentleness in our words, not anger. Jesus, remember, saves his anger for hypocrites. So it's actually more relevant to us, not for sinners who are lost and blind to what is right, like sheep without a shepherd. Love speaks and love forgives. We should be individuals and a community that supports repentant sinners because that is what we all are. And so we won't think our reputation as a friend or a parent or a church is damaged by supporting someone who may have slipped up or made wrong choices, sinned, but has repented and follows Jesus. And love prays. That's right, it prays for salvation. You see, it's a fearsome thing, isn't it? Or it should be for our hearts to hear God's word present woe, pronounce woe over our society and over our neighbours. We need God to open their eyes to their danger and to embolden us to preach. Saving is his mighty work and we should be praying for it. Now I saw and I've heard that there's been a drop-off in our attendance at the prayer meeting. And I know it's only monthly and I know it's cold and I know that in many ways a monthly prayer meeting is mainly symbolic because let's face it, if you're only praying for these things monthly, that'd be terrible. So I do assume you're praying for these things privately and in your growth groups. But actually our monthly prayer meeting is an important symbol and it is something that is good in itself. You see, when we come together to pray for people's salvation, it's saying that we are moved, we are gripped by the reality of the judgment that awaits them and we are equally gripped by God's graciousness in sending his son into the world that he doesn't desire the death of sinners. And so we are confident of the access we have to him together as we ask him to do what only he can do, open the eyes of the blind and raise the dead. Love prays. Woe, says the prophet Isaiah, to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Our society is increasingly one that does that, that substitutes evil for good and good for evil, that is determined to be wise in its own eyes. We, if we are believers, must not be like them. We have to be clear about right and wrong. We must live different lives. Wise lives lived in the fear of the Lord, that trusting awe of the almighty, or wise, holy good, rich in mercy and love, living God, Father, Son and Spirit. Live different lives because we 
trust him. Lives that are lived in love, love that speaks the truth, love that seeks to be rich in doing good, love that seeks the welfare of our society in prayer. We, brothers and sisters, must be different. Now, I know that there's much more that could be said and uh, that these are deeply personal issues. So if you're not convinced that abortion and assisted dying, asking someone else to kill you, are wrong, the wrongful destruction of human life, come and talk. If you are struggling with your own hard choices, struggling to trust God in your circumstances, come and talk. If you are wondering if you can be forgiven or feeling shame at past actions, know the living Lord Jesus can forgive all our sins And he does forgive all the sins of those who turn to him in repentance and faith. He has that authority. The Lord endured shame on the cross so that you and I could come without shame into the presence of the Father and be without shame amongst his people. And if you want assurance of that, come and talk. But maybe you're just angry because talking in the way I have about these things can make some angry. Well, if you're angry, come and talk and work out whether I have taught God's word faithfully and whether you are angry with me or with the living God and the claims on your life. He can handle your anger and your questions. He is better and bigger than you imagine. And he is the one with whom in the end you must find peace. Come and talk. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that in a world that constantly tells us lies, that constantly tells us we're in charge and we have sovereignty over our lives and that that is good and life-enriching, we pray that knowing your goodness, knowing the love that you have shown us in sending your son into the world, knowing your love and power in creation and salvation, we pray that we would be different. We would be people who are delighted to say we belong to Jesus and we will glorify him in all that we say and think and do. Make us that different people, we pray, that holy people, so that others will hear the truth of Jesus and others will see its goodness and find life and hope in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.